Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray now that as we, we look at your word, uh, that you would help us to understand what you are saying to us in Psalm 2. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves to try to figure out life on our own, to try to figure out you on our own. We thank you that you reveal yourself. And so we pray now that by the work of your spirit, you would illuminate our hearts, uh, that we would be able to understand and uh, apprehend what you are saying to us in your word this morning. Uh, would you do this in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So uh, if you were with us last week, we started off our Advent series looking at uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there's this amazing promise that God gives to David. God tells David, I'm going to raise up your offspring. I'm going to establish his kingdom. I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom to get forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And this promise that God gives to David in 2 Samuel 7, this promise of a royal son, a king from the line of David, is what we see really at the heart of Psalm 2. It's interesting sometimes to just kind of think about what it would be like to read a particular psalm, you know, like at the time that it was written or how it was used in Israelite worship to kind of consider like what, what would that be like to read this psalm? And Psalm 2 is interesting I think in that way because Psalm 2 like other royal psalms likely would have been used in a sort of maybe like installation service for an Israelite king or possibly in annual festivals that would have celebrated the reign of some Israelite king. And this was a normal thing for ancient uh, kings and cultures to do, and we still do this sort of thing today with like presidential inauguration ceremonies and that sort of thing. But if you can think like from, uh, from the time of David onward, Psalm 2 would have been this constant reminder, this pointing forward and celebrating the hope of this coming king, this royal son. If you have the text in front of you, uh, I, I want us to unpack it together, and I want you to notice a few things. Uh, you'll see four paragraphs, which are four perspectives. So you see first verses one through three, the nations, the rulers, and the peoples are speaking. Then verses four through six, God responds. Then seven through nine, God's king speaks. And then verses 10 through 12, the writer of the Psalms speaks. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this psalm is take those second and third paragraphs together. And so three really things that I want us to kind of think about together. First is humanity's problem with God. And we're going to look at verses one through three as we think about that. Second, God's response, verses four through nine. And then third, the invitation, verses 10 through 12. So humanity's problem with God, God's response, and the invitation, so let's start. Uh, humanity's problem. There is a really, really great scene uh, in The Lord of the Rings that illustrates really what's going on in these opening verses and what is at the heart 
of humanity's problem with God. Now, I apologize ahead of time if you're very into the Lord of the Rings. I'm a Lord of the Rings movie guy, which I know is like, ugh, to some of you, as opposed to the books. But in the movie, the third movie, The Return of the King, Gandalf comes to Denethor, the steward of Gondor. Denethor is not the king. That's very important. He is the steward. Uh, He's the caretaker. He is the one who is occupying and carrying out the role of the king in the king's absence until the king should return. So Gandalf comes in, and I'm going to do this scene of the movie for you. Uh, uh, Gandalf comes in and he says to Denethor, Hail Denethor, son of Ecthelion, lord and steward of Gondor. And this reminder from Gandalf that Denethor is a steward is not lost on him. Perceiving this threat, he says, Do you think the eyes of the White Tower are blind? I have seen more than you know. With your left hand, you would use me as a shield against Mordor, and with your right, you would seek to supplant me. I know who rides with Theoden of Rohan. Oh yes, the word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn. I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house, long befret of lordship. To which Gandalf then responds, authority is not given you to deny the return of the king, steward. And then he bursts up and he says, the rule of Gondor is mine and none others. Very intense scene. It's a great scene in the movie. Um, What's going on here? The presence of the true king is a threat to everyone who will not bow to that king. It's a threat to those who are meant to be stewards, meant to be caretakers, meant to be participants in the rule, but not the rulers themselves. And this really is the story that the Bible tells. It tells a story that humanity was created in God's image, that we were given dominion, that we were called to rule like little kings, like steward kings under God. This is Genesis 1 and 2. But we, we turned from God, wanting to be our own gods, wanting independence and autonomy. And through that sin, that breach of relationship with God, one of the effects is there is a deep-seated mistrust, suspicion, even hatred of the real God. Now, we are quite happy very happy with man-made religion, with gods that we can control, gods that we can barter with, uh, a la carte kind of spiritualities where you can kind of take this piece, I like that, I don't like that, I'm not going to do that piece of it. These are fine, these are good, these are acceptable, but the real God, the one, verse 4, who sits, meaning he is enthroned, he is the king The one who is the Lord, meaning the sovereign ruler, this God is a threat to every other so-called ruler. He's He's a threat to us. And I want you to think about your life for a moment. Each of us have varying degrees of influence, of power, of rule, You know, some of us have more, some of us have less, perhaps, but we all have it. If nothing else, like, we have some rule over our own lives, 
Like, we figure out what we want to do and what we're going to commit to and what we're not going to do and who we're going to talk. Like, we have some rule, and I want you to ask yourself, how do you exercise your rule, your influence, your power? Do you do this as a steward, or do you do it, or parts of it, as someone who answers to no one? Right? Think about what do you have a right to that God cannot contradict? Do you have a right to your own body to do whatever you want with it? Do you have a right to your desires to fulfill them in whatever way makes you happy? Do you have a right to your money, your skills, your talents, your ability to use them however you want? Do you have a right to your anger? Do you have a right to be harsh, to be domineering? Do you have a right to be unforgiving? Think about your life, think about your relationships, your friends perhaps, if you're married, a spouse, perhaps your parents or your kids or your coworkers. Do you live as a steward, doing life under the authority of someone else, or are you pretending to be a king? This psalm starts with a question, verse one. Why? Why do the nations rage? Why do people do this? Why do we do this? It really makes no sense if you think about it, right? Why do we turn from the God who loves us and who made us for himself, who dignified us to share in his kingdom and in his rule? It's not only just like wrong or even evil, it is nonsensical. What the people in the nations are doing in Psalm 2, it's a twisted version of what we read of in Psalm 1. So Psalm 1, if you're, you might be familiar with that psalm, uh, it's, it talks about this great blessing. How happy is the person who delights in the instruction of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Meditates. That same verb is used in Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the people's plot? could translate that. Why do the peoples meditate in vain? So instead of this vision of like human flourishing from Psalm 1 of meditating on God's word and God's instruction and letting it like fill your mind and like run around in your mind and occupy your thoughts and you're loving it and you're delighting it and you're marinating it. Instead, the peoples in the nation, Psalm 2, are raging and meditating running through their mind how they can be against the Lord. The kings and the rulers, verse 2, set themselves together. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why? Because we will not be ruled. We will be ruled by no one. Now, if you want to know how God desires to relate to people, especially if you're talking about the Old Testament, you think about two things, I think. One, you think about creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And the other you think about is how God relates to Israel. Because the way God relates to Israel, he wants the nations to come to know him through Israel. And both of these, we get the same picture in the Old Testament. God desires to relate to people like a father relates to his child, like beloved children, 
And so one particular uh, piece I just want to point out, in the book of Hosea, chapter 11, you could go read this later, um, but it narrates Israel's story, and it is, it is just a beautiful story of God's love for his people. And so it says things like this, Israel was my beloved child. I took Israel my son, I took him in my arms, I taught him to walk. And then in Hosea 11.4, God says this, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. That's the kind of relationship that God, that humanity was meant to know with God, to be a beloved child of God, to be led by cords of kindness and bands of love. And how do we respond? Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We rule our lives. No, no one else rules us. We don't want anything to do with you. We don't want your love. We don't want your instruction. We hate God. That's, that's the problem. Now, how does God respond? Verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, the enthroned sovereign king looks down at our plotting and our plans for rebellion and laughs. The world leaders, the powers, the nations that stand against God and his anointed, his king, are nothing before him. All the scheming, all the plotting of the most powerful people and the most powerful nations are like a bad joke. But that's not the only thing. God's not only laughing, he's determined to act. Verse 5, he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. I feel like I want to make a comment about wrath. Um, wrath, God's wrath is not some like fly off the wall, divine, uh, you know, temper tantrum sort of thing. God's wrath is his settled deliberate determination to be against that which is evil, that which is not good. If God loves the world, if God loves human beings, if he made us with a vision and a plan and with a specific intention, then his wrath is a necessary outflow of God being against that which he loves. If you have loved any other person in your life, a child, a spouse, a friend, you know that there is a sort of good and righteous anger when we feel that someone or something is threatening that person that we love. God acts, and he acts by establishing his king. Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. His king that will inherit the nations and have rule over the whole earth and who's going to destroy all who stand against God and his kingdom. And we read uh, about this, this royal son in verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, here's what I want us to think about for a moment. 
how does God actually establish his king? Think about this psalm and what I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the service, how a psalm like this would have been used in ancient Israel. I mean, consider Israel's story, if you know Israel's story. The the only time that you get close to a kind of worldwide, international success that this psalm speaks of is under King Solomon, David's son. But, But it's not as grand as this, and it doesn't last very long. After Solomon, under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the nation is split. And the kings in David line, from that time on, they don't even reign over all Israel, let alone over the whole world. I want you to imagine, like, we take the liturgy and the structure of a U.S. presidential inauguration. Like, we just take that service, and then, uh, you know, the village of Hinsdale uses it to, like, you know, install their mayor. It would be kind of funny. Like, it it would feel uh, a little bit far-fetched, like, over the top, perhaps a little ridiculous even, You think about Israel, Israel was not the big kid on the block, not the nation of power really ever. You had, you know, you had Egypt and then you had the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And yet despite all of these political realities, despite the fact that at times Israel's not even in control of their own land, this psalm carried the hope that one day there would be this king who would rule the nations and establish God's kingdom. And when you turn to the writings of the New Testament, Psalm 2 is one of the most referenced Old Testament texts. In the midst of world powers, right, the Roman Empire at that time, and the real just unimpressiveness of Israel at that time, God declares over Jesus at his baptism and at his transfiguration, Psalm 2, you are my son. And this son comes preaching the kingdom and showing what the reign of God looks like. It looks like restoration. It looks like healing. It looks like forgiveness. It looks like wholeness being restored. And yet this son, this anointed one, faces hostility of enemies who hate him without cause and who want nothing to do with God's rule. And so he faces the plotting and the coming together of the rulers of his day, of the religious leaders of Israel, of the the leaders of the Gentiles, of the Romans, And in the midst of the world powers and the rulers who demonstrate once again how humanity feels toward God, God's king is enthroned, but he's enthroned on a cross. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles quote this psalm, the beginning of this psalm. And then in Acts 4.27, I'm going to read this verse for you. They say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. And here's what I want us to appreciate about this. This is the graciousness 
of our king. This is how God responds to humanity's hatred and hostility. This is how he establishes his king. First, in weakness, in humility, in bearing the wrath of the cost of our own cosmic treason. Paul proclaims in Acts chapter 13, verse 33 and following, he says, This is the good news, this is the gospel, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. For God raised him from the dead, fulfilling what he had promised, proclaiming to the world, This is my son. Or Romans chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power, by his resurrection from the dead, right? This is where God is saying, this is my king. This is how you can know that Jesus is my king. I have raised him from the dead. And so now this good news is meant to bring about obedience, which is faith, trust in him among all the nations. And this is why there is this gracious offer at the end of this psalm to come and find refuge, to come and find blessing in this king. And so finally, let's, let's, let's consider the invitation. We are invited, verses 10 through 12, to come to this king. But to come in a specific way. Not to just come in any old way. We, we, we read this in verse 11 and the beginning of 12. Tell us how we are to come. We are to come, verse 12, and kiss the Son, meaning sincere, wholehearted devotion. We are to come, verse 11, as a servant revering Him, rejoicing and trembling. So this, this language that the psalm uses about fear and trembling, it's not talking about the kind of fear that would make you want to like get away or like run away from someone. This is the sort of positive fear. Like if you've ever been able to meet someone that you think very highly of or you perhaps idolize or you adore, you think the world of them, and there's this sense of like awe and wonder and maybe even a little bit of like trembling in their presence. Um, Let me tell a slightly embarrassing story uh, about this recently in my life. So... uh, Myself and a few others uh, who help leading music here at Trinity uh, went away to a liturgy conference in Nashville about six weeks ago. It was a really great time. Um, One of the things that I was most excited about was uh, the band who was going to perform the final concert of this conference. You know, Brian Blade and the Fellowship Band was going to be there. And I realized that it's okay if you don't know who that is. It's a nerdy jazz thing. But I had been listening to this group for years. Like one summer when I was in seminary, I literally listened to one album over and over and over and over again in my car. And so, uh, you know, I'm at the conference and Brian Blade, the drummer and the leader of this band, walks into the conference room at one point and he sits down like 20 feet from me and I feel like I I have to go talk to him. I have to go tell him how much I appreciate everything. And as I get up and I'm like walking toward him, like my 
my heart rate's going up and I'm getting flush and feeling nervous. And it's really weird because I can get up in front of you all every week and you don't intimidate me in the least bit. Like this is totally normal. I'm not nervous, but I'm getting like flustered in front of Brian and I'm trying to like tell him how much I appreciate all this thing. And as I'm speaking to him, I'm thinking, I'm talking to Brian Blade. And there's like a little bit of fear and trembling because I also don't want to look stupid or like not be able to remember who I am or where I'm from or something like that. As I said, this is slightly embarrassing. Um, but if you know what I'm talking about, if you know how you can experience something like that with someone that you respect or you admire or you adore, that there can be this wonder, there can be this awe, there can be even this sense of trembling, what do you think it should look like to come to God's King? You see, I would say this is sort of the acid test of what your relationship with God is actually like. Because there's all sorts of people who have a general belief in God. Maybe they would even identify as Christians, maybe they wouldn't. And there's all sorts of people who would say, yeah, you know, God, probably supernatural, makes sense than not. But they're not coming to Jesus wholeheartedly. And they don't come with this posture of serving him, of Jesus, all that I am is yours to command. And they don't come with this reverence and trembling and awe and wonder at his majesty and his greatness and his glory and just his person. And they don't come with joy and rejoicing, so overwhelmed that he is welcoming them and inviting them to come. Are you coming to him? Does it look like this? I, I think it's fair to say that if we were to boil it down, there are basically like two types of people probably here today. Some of you are perhaps like me and you know that you have come to Jesus and you know him and you know something of what's being described here. But there are times and there are seasons in your life where the flame of your devotion to your king is barely flickering and perhaps that's even like where you find yourself this morning. Where serving him has become kind of hard and kind of dull. Where there's not a lot of joy. There's not much awe and wonder anymore. The good news has kind of become old news. Do you know what I'm talking about? This psalm gives you everything you need to light the fire of love and devotion for God. I want you to just consider Psalm 2. First, consider, right, our sin. Consider the places where you still have areas of your life where you resist your king. Sit honestly in the darkness of what you are saying to God with that. Then consider who it is that you are sinning against. Like, consider the majesty and the greatness and the sovereignty of this king. And then consider Jesus, your king, who came in weakness, who came in humility, who came and died for you, who came to do everything that you could be welcomed back to him freely and fully.
Think on that, marinate on that, meditate on that. But perhaps for others here this morning, when I describe what it looks like to come to Jesus, you know that you honestly never have. The Psalms commentator Derek Kidner has this great line underscoring the weightiness of the invitation that we see here. Summarizing the end of this psalm, he says this, There is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. There is no refuge from him. You cannot and you will not escape this God and his reign. All the plots will fail. All the counsel will come to nothing. In the end, you will not be able to deny him. You can't run from him. You have to run to him. And the amazing offer of Jesus is that he will take you in and he will be your refuge. So come to him and experience the blessedness and the joy and the happiness and the refuge that he is. Amen.